You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. We're doing the days of creation coupled with the seven signs of the cross in John's gospel. So for every day of creation, there's a miracle in the gospel of John. And today is extremely unique. We're up to the day where God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then John's gospel that corresponds to that is the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm glad I had a week off because none of that made sense to me at all. I was just like, I don't know where these connect. But an extra week helped us see that. So why don't we stand as we read the word of God together? We're going to read day four of Genesis and the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And then John's gospel. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And I want to just quickly mention what this is. It says, after this, after Jesus found out that his cousin John was beheaded, and he was filled with grief, he went to go be by himself to pray. Has anybody ever needed a minute? How many love when you need a minute and five to 10,000 people follow you to that minute that you needed? This is what happens to Jesus. And after this, after tragedy, after needing time to himself, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, why the heck are all these people following me? (laughs) Jesus said, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You understand when you feed people, they stay. He said this to test him, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. You do realize if they sit down, they're going to stay. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And I love this verse. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
which he already was, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Father God, we pray that your word would be to us today food for our souls. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So, I heard a lot of good reports. Elder Ron crushed it last week. I was getting video clips, text messages, quotes. I heard Elder Paul did a great job with communion downstairs. He did a great job with it upstairs. He did the tithes and offerings. Anthony piloted the whole service to make sure nothing went wrong. I mean, you name it, Stephanie obviously always does a perfect job all of the time. And I was annoyed about it because we all know that when we lead something or we're the source or we feel like we're the source of how something should go when you're not there, you kind of hope it messes up a little bit. How many watch the New York Giants preseason games in detail like I do? We're going to have an altar call for salvation after the service. I'm watching Eli Manning watch Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones is going to go down as one of the greatest picks in the history of the NFL. But Eli still probably has got a little bit of time left in him. So Eli is watching Daniel Jones, and you know he's hoping he breaks his ankle. They always pan over to Eli whenever Daniel Jones throws his 75th touchdown pass of the game, and Eli cannot hide that dumb look on his face. My man looks like his lunch money just got stolen all the time. You sit there and you hear that things are going well without you. And you're like, no, 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 that's great. Ian, nothing went wrong. Like, like nothing? Like you, can't, you couldn't have just told me one thing went wrong? And what happens is you have this moment where you realize your own vanity and selfishness, which is fantastic. And don't act like I'm the only one because you all have a coworker who got promoted instead of you. And you know you're supposed to pray for them. But every time they do good, you trying to find some kind of reason why it happened that has nothing to do with them. Here's what I realize. And this is what everybody in the room needs to realize about whatever it is that you're responsible for. It doesn't need you. It doesn't need you. The church will always be better than my ability to pastor it. God will always be a better parent than your ability to parent your children. He'll always be a better spouse than your ability to espouse your spouse. He'll always be a better friend than you are to somebody. God will always be better than we are at doing the things God has told us to do. And therefore, God doesn't need us. He wants us. If he needed us, the weight that we would walk under, if God needed us to be God, if he needed us for his actions in the earth to work, then every time we sinned, we would not just have the weight of our own sin, but the weight of keeping God from what God ultimately could have done himself but chose to let us do it, and we didn't. That would be devastating. And here's another thing. I'm just going to say some real kind of confrontational things up front, and then we'll unpack it the whole time. I use the word unpack intentionally because I just did that after a wonderful vacation, and packing and unpacking is always the most edifying experience in the history of the world. You want to know how you're doing as a family? Pack and unpack. We're doing well because I got out of the house. I was like, all right, so we're home. You can unpack. I have to preach tomorrow. I wish I could be here and pack, but... The whole week, she's like, you're going to work on your sermon while you're here? Nope. I'm going to work on it when you're unpacking everything when we get home. 
shouldn't have said that out loud. It's, and my sister, my sister's back in church again. Here, here's another thing that we say. We say, we want the Lord. We say, use me, O Lord. Here's the thing. God doesn't use anyone. Use, think about it, is only useful until the thing being used can't offer you something anymore. So sneakers wear out with use. Cars wear out with use. God does not use us. He fills us with himself. Because when I wear sneakers, they wear out with use. But when God wears me, I get newer as he fills himself with me. God's the only kind of person who can drive a car, and the car gets newer when he drives it. And I'm not saying we're wrong for saying use me. We know what we mean, but I think it's important to clarify terms because we live in a world where people use people all the time, and that's seldom a good thing. I feel like I got used. God doesn't use us. He doesn't have a reason for us, and then when it's accomplished, no longer wants us. That's what use is. He fills us with himself. As we said a few weeks ago, we're not here because God needs us. We're here because God loves himself so much that we are the product of his delight in himself. So when you start out, your existence is God saying, I've already won. You being his child is God saying, it's already succeeded. We don't do things to prove our relation to God. We do things because God's already proven his relation to us, and everything we do is gratitude flowing from that. But that's why it's important for me to know the church doesn't need me, because now I can be here free from the need. I can be here because he wants me to be. I can be here because this is a calling. And the same thing with our parenting, the same thing with our jobs, the same thing with our employees, the same thing with our homes and cars. These things don't need us. We get to be there. I get to parent. Sophia needs God. She doesn't need me. But God has positioned me in her life for a very specific reason, and that's what I want to talk about. But what my concern is, we're talking about rest, and here's the problem. We lose our rest if we go to one of these two extremes. If we either think we have no responsibility, raise your hand if you know somebody who acts like they have no responsibilities. From the silly little grumbling laughs, I'll assume they might be sitting next to you, and that's why you didn't raise your hand. And then over here, we have people, specifically Christians, who think everything comes down to their next ability to behave well. If I do well, then God will bless, and if I don't, then he won't. Something went wrong, so I must have done something wrong. Something went wrong in my children, I must have done something wrong. And there's that sense that all the responsibility is weighted on me, and over here at the other extreme, there's a sense that none of the responsibility is weighted, and like normal, we need to preach in the middle of the tension of those two realities. So look at what happens in day four of creation. God creates the sun and the moon, but listen, let's go back to day one. Listen to what God does on day one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be sun. No. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, 
that it was good. And God separated, not the sun, God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and God called the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Everything the sun was tasked to do was already happening before the sun got there. There was light before there was sun for three days. There was the separation of light and darkness before God ever commanded the sun and the moon to separate light and darkness. There was evening and there was morning before there was ever a sun that would come up or set. Do you see this? Before the sun was given the task to be light, there was already light. Before the sun was given the task to separate the light from the darkness, there was already the separation of light and darkness. And now look what happens at the end of our Bible. Revelation chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city. This is the final Jerusalem. This is the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. At the very beginning of the Bible, there's light, no sun. And at the very end of the Bible, there's light, no sun. The sun is not needed. God is light enough. And he was and he will be. So the tasks that the sun and the moon are given are not God needing them. They're God including them in on what he's already doing. You see that? The sun and the moon get to do what God is already doing and will ultimately do. So our work that we do, the things that we do for God or for each other or in the spirit, they're not initiating works and they're not culminating works. Our work only exists because God's work is the first and God's work will be the last. That's what gives us room to have our work at all is that God worked once and God will work again. But just to make sure we know that God also works in between, listen to this text from the book of Joshua. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And now, last Bible study moment, at the very end of the gospel, when Jesus is dying on the cross, in Luke 23, it says this, it was now about the sixth hour, noon, high noon, when the sun is at its highest point, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So at the time of day when the sun should have been shining the brightest, it went out. Now, I think this is interesting on a theological level that the first Joshua is the one who made the sun stand still, but the final Joshua is who made the sun go out. Do you see that? So before there was a sun, there was light. Afterwards, when there's not going to be a sun anymore, there's still going to be light. And in the middle, while the sun is there, God still can do whatever he wants to the sun. He can make it stand still. He can make it go down. There is no part of our life where God isn't saying to us, take up my yoke upon you. And sometimes we either walk around with no yoke at all, not taking any responsibility, or walk around like the whole yoke belongs to us. 
But the life God has called us up into is not the life where we bear all the responsibility for what we do. It's the life where God says, I'm including you in on what I'm doing and ultimately will do. Jacob's ladder becomes very important for us here. Jacob falls asleep, and he sees a ladder, and he sees angels ascending on the ladder and descending on the ladder. And all of a sudden, the space between heaven and earth becomes one where this ladder is. This ladder is the point where heaven and earth intersect with each other. Thousands of years later, Nathaniel will come to Jesus and say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus says to Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, don't say anything else about what was going on under the fig tree. You're the son of God. And Jesus says this, are you amazed that I saw you sitting under the fig tree? You'll see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Jacob saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder. Jesus says to Nathaniel, I am that ladder. I'm the place where heaven and earth intersect with each other. But now who are we but the body of Christ? Look at the person next to you. There's where heaven and earth intersect. This room is where heaven and earth intersect. The people of God is where heaven and earth intersect. Why do I say that? Why does that matter to any of this conversation? Here's why it matters. Because our job isn't to accomplish the work that God is doing. Our job is to bear witness to the work that God is doing. That is Sabbath 100% on steroids. Our job is not to accomplish the work God is doing. Our job is to reflect the work that God is doing. We can't accomplish the work that God is doing. That's why Jesus had to say it is finished. All we do is reflect the work that God is doing. My responsibility to Sophia is to reflect what God is doing in her life to her. And there will be a point where she probably doesn't want me to be doing that, and I'm going to anyway. To the best of my ability, try and reflect what God is doing in her life. But look at this. Look at this. The sun, we know this, the sun represents Jesus, and the moon represents the church, because the moon in its fullest glory is not reflecting its own light, but it's only reflecting the light of the sun. And the moon, like me as a father, like me as a pastor, is going to go through phases. I won't make any full moon jokes, but you know where I could go if I wanted to. But there's going to be times as Christians where we're just on. We're doing it well. We're, we're expressing the glory of God back to God, which is called worship, and back to creation, which is called stewardship. We're, we're reflecting him well. And then there's going to be seasons where our light looks like a thumbnail. There's going to be seasons where it's half moon. There's going to be seasons where there's no moon. And I love the grace of God because we call that a new moon. But the reality is, the light of the moon can go out, but the sun's going to come up tomorrow. The light of the sun can't go out. His work transcends our work the same way that the sun's light transcends the moon's ability to reflect it. So here's what I'm saying. 
God puts the moon exactly the way it exists to show us the allowance that we should be living in. God is expecting from us what he's expecting from the moon. He knows we're going to go in cycles. He knows we're going to be glorious one day and gone the next day, and then we'll come back again. Is this not everybody's story? Like, am I the only one? And when the moon is at its brightest is when all of its flaws are the most clearly seen. If the moon refuses to reveal its craters, it also refuses to show the sun's light. You want to shine the light of Christ. Stop acting like you have it all together. You want to shine the light of Christ to your children? Stop acting like their goodness is based on you. You want me to shine the light of Christ the best in this church? Remind me if I ever stop being transparent and scold me. Because the way you'll see Jesus in my life is by me being perfectly fine where I actually don't show Jesus very well. And then his light shines on that. It illuminates it in a way that nothing else can. If we want to hide our flaws, we also hide the light of the sun. If we want to reveal the light of the sun, like Jesus, come and look at the craters on my hands, Thomas. Come and look at the craters in my feet. Come and look at the crater in my side. His glorious body has craters in it. Who are we to act like our fallen one shouldn't? You're free to go in phases. You're free to have craters. It all doesn't come down to the next good thing you do. Your family's life, this church's existence, your job, whatever it is, is not based on your next good or bad choice. I skip around so much. Like, what is going on in the world right now? It all plays out in John 6. I couldn't figure out how do these two stories go together until the best line in the whole story of the feeding of the 5,000. And lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now listen to this. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was already going to do. That's the connection. Moon, if you don't shine, the sun is already going to shine anyway. Sun, if you go out, there was light before you existed anyway. Philip, if you go to try to buy all these people bread and you can't come up with any, I'm going to feed them anyway. His work is always going to be the first and the last work. This is what he says his name is. How many know when Moses says to God, what is your name? He says, my name is I am. So in Revelation, when Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, he's not saying what he is. He's giving you his name. I am right now, yesterday, and tomorrow. I'm the initiating work. I'm the culminating work. You're everything in between. But if you should fail in the in-between work, I am for you. We work, we parent, we love, we spouse, we friend with such freedom. 
and we live in a culture, not just the fallen culture, but even a Christian culture, that makes us feel like God's ability to be God is rooted in our competency. And I want to show you right now, in Scripture, not just vain ideas, but in Scripture, how it's not. Let's, let's look at, there's three groups of people in the feeding of the 5,000 narrative. There's the people who ate. There's the disciples who learned. And there's Jesus who does the feeding. We have to remember when we look at this chart that our light, like the moon, is only and ever his light. It's only and ever his light. We don't shine light of our own. We only and ever shine his light. We don't come up with good works, and we won't finish the world with good works. Like I've said to a lot of people, and you could ask me more about this on Wednesday night if you want to. I'm going to make choices in my life, but my trust is in that God's final choice is going to be better than all the choices I've ever made in my life. So let's talk about the people who ate first, because I think the people who ate are the most important people in the story, and I think Jesus does too. The people eating is where ministry starts. When we're reflecting the light of Christ, ministry flows from our personal needs. When we are reflecting the light of Christ, ministry flows from our personal needs. Watch this. When we're not reflecting the light of Christ, ministry flows from me meeting somebody else's needs. Emoji face. Pastor, how could you say that? Isn't meeting somebody else's needs ministry? Look at the words intentionally. My ministry should end with me meeting somebody else's needs. But it flows from my needs getting met. If I don't eat, I can't feed. Watch. Jesus says to Peter three times, feed my lambs. Right? At the end in the resurrection story, three times, Jesus says to Peter, you go feed others. But Peter could never have fed others the good news if Jesus didn't first say, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. If Jesus didn't feed Peter on forgiveness, Peter couldn't have fed anybody in the church on the good news. Jesus goes up to Peter three or four days before that and says, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter says, don't ever wash my feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no share in me at all. I did not come to be served, but to serve. This is what God is saying. I did not come to be served. I came to serve. If you don't let me serve you first, you can't serve me by serving other people at all. Because if I don't wash you, you can't serve. If I don't meet your needs, you can't meet needs. If I don't forgive you, you can't proclaim forgiveness. If I don't put my spirit on you, you can't lay hands on anybody and have them get the spirit. If you don't let me embrace you, your embrace of others won't mean anything. We, and then Jesus says to the people, when you fed the poor, you fed me. So look at our communion baskets. There are three things that happen in the moment of communion. How many know and agree that the communion table is Jesus feeding us? 
But how many know that you're the body of Christ? And you're eating. So the communion table isn't just Jesus feeding you. It's also Jesus being fed himself. Because we're the body of Christ when we come to eat. So Jesus is feeding and eating on Sunday. He said, when you didn't feed the poor, you didn't feed me. But when you fed the poor, you fed me. Jesus is the poor, showing us how to be served so that we can be the people who can then finally serve them. But if we walk around trying to avoid our need, thinking that the best ministry in my life comes from how good I am at meeting your needs, that sun goes out fast. The best way we minister to the world outside of this building is to show them how to have the right posture to get our need met. It is not a good thing if you're better at giving a gift than receiving one. We should be really good at both. Because Jesus receives gifts all the time and gives them all the time. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Does Simon help Jesus carry his cross? Jesus was served on his way to the mountain where he would serve us for all time. Did he die first or was he served first? Served first. He got help so that he could give all the help. If we refuse to get helped, if we think that, the, that our ability to not need help shows that we're good Christians, we're not being like Jesus at all. Jesus is expressed in, honest, in honesty in the face of our own needs as much as he's expressed in the generosity of me meeting needs. But if we walk around embarrassed because we have needs, then we're not being like Jesus because Jesus, watch this, just, just a point, just a point I'll make real fast. Jesus didn't need Simon to help him carry the cross. He got help because help is good even if we don't need it. Jesus could have spun the cross on his finger like it was a basketball up Calvary. He got help because he's revealing to us that getting help is good even if you don't need help because you're including someone else in on what you're doing. So even if you have no needs, you should still let people meet them. The next are the disciples. How do we feed them, Philip? Um, a lot of money, Jesus, a lot of money, and none of us have it. Ministry, when we're revealing the light of Christ, flows from our progressive growth. Ministry, when we're not revealing the light of Christ, flows from our current competency. So many of us Christians pride ourselves on being able to come up with the 200 denarii to feed the people. And even if you could come up with a thousand denarii to feed the people, that's not what Jesus was looking for. But so many of us think, and I wrestle with this every day of my life as a spiritual leader in the church and in the community, 
I was at my own cousin's wake, and people are asking the honest questions. Why would God let this happen? And there's that thing in you that says, my ability to be competent right now is going to make them think I'm a good pastor. Nope. Jesus asked Philip this question, not so that Philip could try to find the right answer, but so that Jesus could teach Philip that your ability to learn, your best ministry is going to flow out of your ability to learn, not in your ability to get it right now. And so many pastors and so many parents and so many employers and employees were spending all of our life trying to come up with creative ways to feed the 5,000. And what we're never actually doing is looking at our lack saying this is good enough. Jesus, watch this, you're ready, you're going to stone me for this one. If you haven't stoned me yet, let's be real, I think I'm okay. I think I'm pretty okay. Jesus learned. Was he all-knowing? Yup. Did he learn? Yes. Prove it. Fine. I will. Jesus gets left in the temple by his mom, and the final verse says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, and watch this scandalous one, and Jesus grew in favor with God. Just sit down for a minute and think what growing in favor might mean for Jesus. That means that Jesus had favor here that he didn't have here because he grew in it. But Jesus is also God. I don't know. Why, why are you looking at me? I'm just saying stuff. Did Jesus need Simon to help him carry his cross? No, he allowed Simon to, to reveal to us that a life of getting help is good even if you don't need it. Did Jesus need to learn? No, but Jesus lived as one who did to show us that learning is closer to the life of God than having all the answers immediately. Does that make a little sense? Jesus shows us that incremental growth is closer to the life of God than having everything now. More scripture for it. God says to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, I'm going to remove your enemies little by little. Because if I don't, the wild beasts will overtake you. Do I have any Bible scholars who know that verse? And we all sit there and say, what is he talking about? If I remove, like, please remove all my enemies now. I would really like you to do that. And he's like, well, if I do that, you're going to get eaten by lions. Why? Because if I remove all your enemies now, you're not big enough yet to till and to cultivate all the ground that will be left to you. So I'm going to remove your enemies at the pace of your growth so that every time an enemy is removed, you're able to take that ground and work it. We show Christ's light the best when we're learning, not having immediate answers. One of the things I learned I learned in my public speaking class way back when, on a, they were talking about debate, and my prof- I'll just never forget this. He said, in America, debates are won and lost because the people think that whoever can answer the quickest is the smartest. No. Whoever thinks the best is the smartest. And sometimes it takes time to think. Somebody asks you a question about God and you don't have an answer, say, I don't know. They might think, oh, see, there goes another Christian, just nothing but faith and no answers. Just Wait. Let me wrestle with it. Let me think about it. 
coming back with a full embodied answer is going to be better than trying to come up with a, a clever quib in the moment. Philip, how are we going to feed these people? We have to make a lot of money. Nope. You have to give your lack to me. They learn. Because Jesus learns freely to show us that learning is one of the best ways we'll ever reveal God. And then finally, so important, Jesus takes bread from a poor child. <laughs> he steals the kid's lunch. No one ever saw that before. We don't have a lot of food, but this kid has some. Give it to me. <laughs> Steals the kid's lunch. The disciples say, even if we came up with 200 denarii of money, we couldn't feed them. And, by the way, there's a kid here who has a few loaves of bread and a few fish, but who, what is that for so many? All they ever see is what they don't have. Saints, we struggle with this all the time. It's why advertising is advertising. Advertising never encourages you to be appreciative for what you do have. No mannequin at Kohl's looks like me. I want I want I want a store to get real and sh put some clothes on somebody who looks like me. I scared so many children at the beach this week. You know sometimes when you go body surfing in the water and then all the water pulls back and it's just you on the sand? Like kids are like, "Mom!" Like Whales look like humans, mom. Show me a mannequin that looks like that, please. They're never trying to encourage you. They're always showing you what you're not. Always. And all the disciples do. And all we ever do when we reflect on the year we had. Yes, we'll say some stuff was good, but we're the most moved by what didn't happen that should have. We will say what we're grateful for but we are moved the most by what we want it to have had happen that didn't. We're moved more by our disappointment than our gratitude. It's not that we don't try to be grateful, but we're moved more by our disappointment. Watch what Jesus does. All these people looking at him like this. Look, I have a church of five, 10,000 people. This is amazing. Stephen Furtick, look at this. He's got a piece of bread in his hand, and he's looking at all these mouths, and here's what Jesus doesn't do. Father, please make this bread more. Make it enough. Multiply it for your glory. That's not what he does. In any story of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus never prays for more. He says, Father, thank you. He thanks him for what isn't enough. And then he takes what isn't enough and keeps giving what's not enough until everybody has enough. When we're revealing the life of Christ, the light of Jesus, the light of God, ministry flows from gratitude. Listen to me. I'm not saying that if you're thankful, your $2 will turn into 20000 some will say that. I'm not saying that. Jesus wasn't thankful because God was going to feed the 5,000. He was thankful because God was God. Whether the people ate or not. 
Jesus was okay trying to work with a piece of bread. This is why Paul, later in the Bible, will say, I have learned the secret of facing abundance and lack. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need Jesus to strengthen me as much in my lack as I do in my abundance. Because if he's not strengthening me in my lack, I'll be be defined by what I don't have. And if he's not strengthening me in my blessing, I'll be defined by thinking I got it on my own. I need Jesus to strengthen me in both cases. Jesus is there because he's grieving John. Jesus is there because his family just suffered a tragedy. His gratitude isn't replacing grief. His gratitude is happening to his grief. Jesus is there lamenting over the people's hunger. His gratitude is not replacing lament. It's happening to lament. Most churches will teach that you need to rebuke the grieving spirit. You need to rebuke the despairing spirit. You need to rebuke the sorrowful spirit and have joy. Joy and gratitude isn't something that replaces grief. It's something that happens to grief. Because Jesus grieved, we should never feel bad grieving. And Jesus felt sorrow. We should never feel bad feeling sorrow. And Jesus wept over the tomb of a man he knew he was going to see 30 seconds later. And yet he wept. We should never feel bad weeping. But gratitude should happen to it. Gratitude should happen to all of our emotions. And so what does Jesus keep doing every Sunday? He keeps bringing us to a table, and I purposely close with this. He keeps bringing us to a table to show us that Jesus is that little kid's lunch. When he saw that little kid's lunch... He saw himself. What is this for so many? What is my life for the world? Enough. Jesus goes to the cross as five loaves and two fish. And God has been reaching his hand into the cross and feeding us with bread and cup ever since. And we will eat until we're sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb himself. All of this to say, take the pressure off your life if you think everything falls on you, and add some pressure to your life if you think you have no responsibility. But understand that any responsibility we do have is given to us by God, sustained by God, sustained by his grace, and wherever we fall short of that responsibility, he will have the final word. His light will shine with or without a sun or a moon. If you're going through phases, it's okay. Here's the last thing I want to say. Does God know? Does, has God told us over and over in Scripture that he wants us to learn? He wants us to be disciplined. He wants us to be disciples. He wants to train us like children. So that means that every time the Spirit tells you to do something, it's written into the command that you're not going to be able to do it. And his teaching is part of his will. So people say, this week I wasn't in his perfect will. But if you're able to say that, you know that you were wrong, right? Yes. And you see where you failed, yes. And you kind of know how to do it better the next time, yes. Then you were always in his perfect will because his perfect will is that you learn. That's his perfect will. 
Let's stand to our feet this morning. Let's pray for a moment. Holy Spirit, hover over this room for a little while. And show us where we're living in the slavery of our own performance. Show us where fear has gripped our heart. That if we don't perform, then you won't act. Father God, I pray for every person in this room, everyone so different, so fearfully and wonderfully made, so loved by you. We may look at ourselves and say, I'm only five loaves and two fish. What am I for this life that you've given to me? Father God, I pray that in your singular voice, you would speak to 200 people in this room. And you would tell anyone right now who's struggling that their life is the reason why things haven't worked out. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would just gently lean in. And you would tell them in a way that is meaningful to them that you take their life, which seems like it's only two loaves and a few fish, and you could feed the world with their life. Holy Spirit, lean into anybody who's afraid to take responsibility. Because we feel like once we do, we'll ruin it. And show us that before we could ever take up responsibility, you've already been responsible. That before we ever take responsibility, you've already been perfectly faithful. So that in the face of our own failures, you can shine on a crater and have it become as bright as any spot on the moon that doesn't have a crater. You can light up the night with craters. When you shine on flaw, flaw can light up the night. Father God, I know and I sense in my heart and in my spirit that people are struggling with self-image desperately. And I pray that you would let us know that you never meant for us to have a good self-image. You meant for us to have your image. You never meant for us to do our own good works. You prepared good works for us. You never meant for us to get it right. That's why you told us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit can be bore in repentance, which means that fruit can happen in craters. As we come to your table, I pray, God, that you would make us able to be fed to learn to feed and to feed because you do all of those things. 
when we come to this table, Lord Jesus, you're on the table, you're at the table, and you're coming to the table. This whole room is you. I pray that we would feel that. This whole room is you. You are all in all. So we remember that on the night when you were betrayed, you didn't think your ministry failed because you weren't influential. You didn't think you must have said something wrong because somebody was denying you and doubting you and betraying you. You weren't defined by the disciples' response to you. You took up the bread on the night when you were betrayed and boldly yet humbly said, this is my body given to you because you betray, given to you because you doubt, given to you because you deny. And when you held up the cup, you weren't insecure about how well you did over the last three years. But you said, this is my blood poured out for you because you betray, because you deny, and because you doubt. You fill the crater with your very life. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that like in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, you would fall on this bread and this cup and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And we pray that you sanctify us also, that we could go, not from broken pieces of bread, but broken humanities, and leave this church as the body of Christ. Hover over this room. And let your will be done, Father God, on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.